You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Farini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're diving into this question of violence in the Old Testament with Dr. Matthew Lynch, who is Associate Professor of Old Testament here at Regent College. Before coming to Regent, he was the academic dean and lecturer in Old Testament at West, Westminster Theological Centre in the UK. He's written a number of different books kind of exploring this idea of violence in the Old Testament. And so today we were talking with Matt about that, about his book, his recent book that's just come out called Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. And Matt has a, like a beautifully clear way of helping us understand these texts, not necessarily tying them up in a bow like it all makes total sense, but how do we actually um, how do we understand approaches to understanding violence and how we understood that kind of in the history of interpretation and how people understand these texts. But then, and then he helped us sort of understand a little bit more about the flood as well as the Canaanite conquest. And we didn't cover all of it. And so I, I would really encourage people to go and check out Matt's book um, because it is really helpful Um for, for those who have wrestled with these texts and um, uh, those who have wrestled with the violent and terror texts, the Canaanite destruction, and kind of unearth some of the some of the meaning, but also be prepared to be surprised is kind of what we, we took away from the conversation. So it was a great conversation. So friends, I hope you enjoy yet another conversation with Dr. Matthew Lynch. Lynch, no stranger to podcasts, no stranger to Regent College. Welcome back to the Regent Podcast. Thanks so much, Claire and Nick. Good to be back with you. So good. Okay, we're talking about your book that you've just that's just come out called Flood and Fury: Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. Um, and you've you've written about this, you've talked about this before. But what was your hope in writing this book in the way that you did? Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So I had written another book called Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible. And and people have said, asked me like, oh, is this like a popularized version of that other book? And it's totally different. Um, and it's because I wanted to ask a different question first and then write this book. And the first book was focused on how does the Old Testament itself think about violence when it's thinking about it as a problem? So what are yeah, some of the categories? When it's thinking about it as a problem, that's yeah. the key, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so... Uh, to to kind of make the point that the Old Testament has a, a very robust understanding of the problem of violence, it, it puts it front and center, you know, in the aftermath of the of the the fall, and so um, so that's a, what I call like a ground up study of violence, and then but there's also the top down question. We have our questions about violent texts and how do we as Christians wrestle well with them now. I knew that there are other books written on violence in the Old Testament. It's like a, there's a good number of them actually. Mm. And, but uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are written by people interested in apologetics and, mm. and they offer helpful approaches and, and ways of thinking through violent texts. But I, I felt like what was often lost was a sense of the, the rich depth and complexity and, mm kind of multi-layered nuance of biblical uh, text that 
are problematic for modern readers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to find a kind of non-reductive approach to thinking through violent texts. And that's kind of what I wanted, that's what I wanted to do in this book. And also to make a point that the Old Testament itself is sort of category and approach defying. So it resists yielding to a single method or approach to the problem of violence. Mm -hmm. um, approaches and methods can be helpful, but what we really need is sort of field adaptive, um, uh, a field adaptive ability to navigate the the varied terrain of the Bible. And I wanted to kind of model that by looking in depth at the flood story and the conquest. So those are mm -hmm. my like, two case studies. Mm -hmm. And then to step back from that and say, well, at the end of the day, given um, the wrestling we've done and the still lingering unresolved elements of those questions, what then do we do? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the final part of the book is, is the what then given mm -hmm the fact that these are unresolved questions mm -hmm. for us. So that, that's more in the kind of turn toward thinking about the kind of faith maybe that can can sit with and wrestle with violent texts. Mm -hmm. Matt, you brought up the different ap approaches to the text, and I wonder if we could just uh, chat about and hear a little bit of the few of them. Um, so first, there's maybe uh, what's called a spiritualizing of the violent texts or the different texts in in the Bible, uh, could you just share what this approach is and like why it's helpful, but then also what are some of the pitfalls? Sure. Matt says no. Matt says no. He doesn't <laughs> nope, want to answer that. Not no, going to do it. I refuse. Next one. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, spiritualizing is is a an approach that goes back to the early church with with uh, prominent figures like like Origen. Uh, he's the most uh, famous. He wrote a commentary on the book of Joshua. And um, he in it, he, he says, well, what, who are the Canaanites? But the vice is within us. And so the, you know, things like greed and idolatry and, and lust and, and anger and so on, these are the, the vices that we need to utterly destroy and show them no mercy. And so he takes the story of Joshua and then he rereads it as um, a kind of like they represent this other thing. Hmm. And, and I actually think there's some merit to that approach if done right. But on the other hand, one of the risks is, is just sort of arbitrarily substituting one thing that we don't like for another that we do think is worthy of God and using this sort of worthy of God criteria as... Um, mm -hmm. That's that can be either external to the Bible or just based on a few other texts to then judge the texts we're looking at, um, and it can lead to a loss of the Old Testament's plain sense, and mm. and with that come hidden costs like the ability of the text to speak prophetically to the church, to to speak against us, and and so we 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 don't just need texts that sort of fit our preconceived ideas of who God is and what God's like, but also texts that are going to bite back and, and challenge us. And, and so that, and that also sort of maintain the old Testament's own earthiness, that, that there's a groundedness to the old Testament. And it doesn't just speak about this nation of Israel and its institutions and its daily life um, in order to get at like internal spiritual realities within us. Um, Matt, can you talk to us a little bit about um, 
the approach that times have changed and that therefore God works differently over time, this kind of idea of progressive revelation. Is that like, is there, is there some kind of merit or sense in that? Could that be kind of a viable solution to these texts that are problematic, these violent texts? Yeah. So there, there are kind of two different approaches to progressive revelation. One is, is that God just changed how he acts Mm. um, through time. So he used to be okay with things like stoning children. And, um, now he's no longer, Mm -hmm. um, okay with that, or he permitted it in the past and now he, he doesn't. Um, so that, that's a view that actually God changes and works in different time at different times in different ways. And, and even with that view, I think there's something to the idea that God does change how God works through time. Like he, in the old Testament, we see God working primarily through one people, nation, Israel. And in the New Testament, from a Christian perspective, God works through the church dispersed among the nations. So so there is a shift in God's action, but I think um, that's that. it's a step further than to say there's a, a shift in the sort of moral standards of God of throughout God, time, yeah. the justice right. standards. And then there's a different uh, version of progressive revelation that says that our perception of God changes through time and becomes clearer. So whereas the Old Testament and portions of the Old Testament represent like uh, maybe a blurrier view of God, the the photograph is a bit grainier. Mm. And as you move through scripture, it gets clearer and clearer until you get to the person of Jesus, where we get this crystal clear picture of who God is. And in the problem with that, with well, with both views, um, the one is is this idea of a moral change in God, which I think creates other problems. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that it's hard to chart a clear trajectory trajectory in Scripture from mm. unclear to clear. Yeah, um, as if the disciples <laughs> or the New Testament writers even yeah. saw Jesus as. Um, just crystal clear. Like yeah. there's a great deal of mystery that's retained there in the life of Jesus. And there are some pretty fundamental claims in the Old Testament that like humans made in the image of God. Is that a blurry, is that somehow something that's, you know, a, a partial misunderstanding of of who we right. are? Um, yeah. Or God, the claims throughout the Old Testament that God is merciful and compassionate. Are they also grainy? And mm-hmm. and and not quite crystallized yet. Mm-hmm. So so I think this idea that you have this clear pathway doesn't quite work. And it also you run into the problems of violence in the New Testament, like mm-hmm. future judgment that mm-hmm. Jesus talks about, or the the topic of hell. So so there's the the line is just not kind of nice and neat from the OT to the NT, mm-hmm. such that you can always chart that. And again, I would want to say there's something to this idea, but it's inadequate to handle um, the revelatory value of the Old Testament texts like the flood story or Joshua. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I wonder, like, what about the approach that we, you know, with these difficult texts, um, these violent texts, what about we're just like misreading the text? I mean, they were written to an ancient culture, like in an ancient context, like this is ancient literature we're dealing with. Like why, why not? Like, mm. 
for example, you know, like w- when the text maybe says like we left nothing alive that breathes, like it sh- should be just translated as like all they won, like that. That's how we can we can translate it. Like, wh- what about this lens and approach? Yeah. So I, I I'm a big fan of aspects of that one, um, mm. and you know, like as with some of the other approaches, there's there's some really helpful portions of it this one in particular it it takes seriously the fact that there are you know we need to understand the old testament as a form of ancient rhetoric and to understand it within that world not assume modern understandings of phrases that we read there um so you're right the the idea of leaving nothing alive that breathes is non-literal Within the ancient world, it's hyperbolic, it's exaggeration. So there's a great study on this by Webb and Oesta where they they talk about how ancient conquest accounts would frequently exaggerate the extent, severity, and scope of of, um, victories. Mm -hmm. And it's like a sports team saying, we utterly demolished and destroyed the other team, when in fact, like maybe... Maybe you won by a uh, you know a significant margin or something like that, but mm. you know the opponent didn't get zero points, and you yeah. also didn't literally slaughter them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, I I think I think that can be helpful for grappling with this, but at the same time, we are still left with that language, um, and mm-hmm. and even if understood in its ancient world. It's it doesn't erase the violence of that rhetoric. So one of the mm. points that's often made along these lines is is to compare it to Assyrian warfare rhetoric, and the mm-hmm. Assyrians would speak this way about their victories. And then, you know, it's clear that the enemy survived. And just like in Joshua, Israel, it says they put this town to the to the sword, left nothing alive that breathes. And two chapters later, there's people running around all over the place there. Mm. Um, but the the comparison with the Assyrians is you're still left with a very brutal, violent um, form of warfare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Assyrians were horrifically violent and gloried in that. And, and so you're still left with the language. You're still left with some texts where it appears that like in 1 Samuel 15, where Israel is is critiqued for leaving people alive afterward. Um, mm, so right. in some cases, even, it does seem to actually mean total destruction, although I'd want to yeah. nuance that too. Um, so at the end of the day, you're, you still got this this really hard language to to deal with and, and try to make sense of. Okay, can we go to another approach? Yeah, so here's, sure. here's another way. You could be just like, okay, well, then we'll just look at Jesus and the cross. So, you know, a cross-centered approach to sort of look to Christ and his sacrifice as this kind of like final understanding of the character of God. So do we can we look at violent texts through that way? Um, you know, as is in that's that's where we see God's character displayed. And there's violence in mm. that. Mm-hmm. And so maybe mm-hmm. that's okay. Or or that's something yeah. that not not you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. One way that people have Spoken of the cross event is uh, the sort of the end of violence that mm. that God mm-hmm. no longer requires it or took it on Himself in Christ and put to death the sort of death dealing mm. um, approach that you see in the Old Testament. So um, I th- 
one of the um, one of the things I say in the intro is that I read the Old Testament toward Jesus, and so I do read it as a Christian. I don't pretend mm-hmm. I have to, I don't like take off my Christian hat when I read the Old Testament in order to mm. just hear it in its own terms. I mean, if you think about it, even even the fact that we read these thirty nine books together is a theological commitment. Because yeah. why don't we just read them with Assyrian Egyptian Hittite literature as if it's all the same, right? So yeah. you're right. by even kind of taking these texts. Um, making a theological commitment either as a Jewish person or Christian. So you can't ever escape like the theological lens mm-hmm. um, when reading the Bible. And and then the other piece of it, though, is that while I read it toward Jesus and see Jesus as the culmination of the story, I have to reckon with the idea that New Testament writers themselves did not take the story of Jesus as self-interpreting and self-evident as if it mm. then could be used as a lens for reading other stuff, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's sometimes what's said is we have to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And I'm saying, well, how do? We, what is the lens of Jesus? Where do you mm. get that from? Mm-hmm. And the New Testament writers, well, you might say, well, the New Testament. Well, the New Testament is grappling with the story of Jesus By returning to the Old Testament to make sense of that story in the first place. Right. Mm. It's not Mm self-evident. So the fact that Jesus died on the cross, um, that he was buried, that he was raised again, is remarkable from a human point of view, but it doesn't mean something on its own. Mm. Um, Right. Resurrection doesn't prove that the story of Israel had reached its culmination. (laughs) <laughs> it it means mm. someone came back from the dead. Wow. That's that's utterly astonishing, but what do we do with it? And that's mm-hmm. where the old the New Testament writers when they're trying to figure out what to do with it, they go back to the Old Testament. So mm. so to get back to the question about reading the Old Testament from a cross-center point of view, um how can you reread those texts? Through the lens of Jesus, if the Old Testament itself is the story that makes sense of right. of the cross event, now I could be happier with someone who said, "Well, it's a kind of back and forth, right?" So uh, mm-hmm. you go to the story of Jesus, you return to the Old Testament, you return to the New. So I'm okay with that. It's just that some versions of a Christocentric or even a crucicentric, cross-centered approach essentially say. You have to take the cross event and then reread every text in the Old Testament until it looks identical to that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, or else it's not a true final revelation of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's somehow inferior to it. Right. Yeah. No, it's helpful having the text, New Testament, Old Testament, be able to speak to one another mm-hmm. and be able to yeah. talk. One of the things you say in your book is that scripture is often more expansive um, has a more expansive understanding of the problem problem of violence than we we do maybe in our in our modern lens what, what do you mean by this like how how might scripture's understanding of violence differ from our own or or be more expansive yeah so this part of this comes out of my earlier work and um, one of the kind of surprising things when I did that work on violence before? How does the Bible think about 
violence when it thinks about it as a problem um, is that in certain parts of the Old Testament, for instance, in Psalms and Proverbs, there's a, a clear recognition that that speech is a form of violence. Um, it's not that just that it leads to violence or it could stir up violence, but that it's it can be a kind of violence in and of itself. Hmm. And in many cases, it's like the most problematic kind. So the psalmist will pray consistently for protection from the, the tongue, the the um the words the speech of the enemy and to pray for shelter from that because it's destroying them or their land or their community mm-hmm. and so i think the old testament i think in modern culture we have a concept of verbal violence like that's something that's known mm-hmm. um but it's often treated as you know something mm-hmm. that people who are a bit bit snowflakey say you know mm-hmm. um where they count speech mm-hmm. as violence then um you know it's just they're, they're kind of diluting the term uh, or mm-hmm. they can't they can't deal with uh critical pushback or something and, and there's mm-hmm. you know maybe there's something to that but but at the same time the bible recognizes that that speech uh is uh is a key form of violence and that communities to survive need to guard their speech mm. and and that that can undermine uh, a community if you think about like a very tightly knit communal culture um to have foolish talk that's that's where where there are maybe uh, violent accusations or something like that happening can can really destroy someone can destroy their reputation in a in a community mm-hmm. so that's one thing and then also um I think the Bible has a more expansive understanding of the way that violence ruins the earth and mm. the way that the land is caught up in the the web of human on human violence. Mm-hmm. So uh, when Cain kills his brother Abel, the ground responds by refusing to put forth, forth its produce for Cain, and he becomes an, a nomad and a wanderer. And he has to go into exile because the land says, no, I'm refusing to put forth my produce for you because you killed your brother whose blood is now poured mm-hmm. out upon me. Mm-hmm. And and so in many places throughout the Old Testament, there's an awareness that, that the land is bound up with, the, the very ecology is bound up with the things we do to each other, mm-hmm. and particularly with violence. Right. So, so I think... Th- you know, the Old Testament would want to write a book about us, if it could, mm-hmm. about the problem of violence in mm-hmm. the 21st century. Right. Um, even in places that, you know, we would not maybe define as war-torn. Yeah. Because they would yeah, say, yeah. look at the land. Look at the state of the land. That's a diagnostic that there's a real problem here. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know, share it with them, share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm -hmm. Second way, you could, you could, 
give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give and, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Whenever you talk to biblical scholars, you realize, yeah, there's a lot more going on here than, you know, we could have ever understood, right? Um, and so, you know, and you say this, that, and it's often it's this act of then slowing down, being curious, asking more questions, you know, that sort of thing. And that's what you say. You say with, when we're seeing these texts of terror or violence, we need to read it slow and prepare to be surprised. Can you talk to us? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think the... Old Testament is is custom built to for rereading and yeah. and for slow communal digestion <laughs> um, to use a gastronomical metaphor. Yeah. I do like to I do like to throw those in whenever possible. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, I'll see if I can spice up with a few more. Add a few more in, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, as as you gulp down the text and chew on it, now, um, mm. so so I do think that you're you know you're called to meditate on Scripture day and night, and I think maybe we read that and we think like you just to sort of recite verses in your head and and recite them like a mantra, and that's you know maybe that is part of it, uh, but I also think it's a statement about the fact that this literature is meant to provoke questions. And to present paradoxes and to confront you with mysteries in order to draw you in to um, question and go deeper mm-hmm. and to know God by pursuing God mm-hmm. and, and to pursue God specifically in this literature. Mm. And that yeah. there's, there's great reward and surprise in doing that. And it's meant to be done, not just you and your Bible at home alone, but in a community uh, where, where that's taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So um, I think one of the um, ways that this happens, for instance, is in, in places in the Bible where we're confronted with, you know, maybe a, a particular mystery about God. Like in, in Samuel, where it says within the space of one chapter that you know God is not a human, that he should change his mind. And then at mm-hmm. the end of the chapter, God changed his mind concerning Saul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's a narrative strategy to provoke you to think about the senses in which God changes and doesn't change. Yeah. And that's not something that's easily answered. Um, and, and the text even doesn't just give you the you know, the, the sort of middling way to navigate Mm -hmm. that, but, but forces you then to think about it and Mm -hmm. to puzzle through it. And, and so, and then the, the prepare to be surprised piece, I think, I think the story is written with 
surprises built in that that surprise us literarily, but also maybe culturally too. Like the end of Genesis two, where it says the um, man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and it's like culturally, it was always the woman who left the mother and father. So you're mm. you're kind of puzzling, like why does it say this and it doesn't explain it, um, and you know, the story of Abraham and Sarah, where you've got these problems plaguing humanity and the fallout of the Tower of Babel. And then God comes up with this brilliant solution to choose an elderly migrant couple who can't have children and through them build a nation, mm-hmm. right? So so you're you're primed as a reader to expect the unexpected as you yeah. as you read this story and in this literature. And I think I think that's the the right kind of posture for going into hard texts as well. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that is and and this is maybe a faith posture to assume that there's probably more going on here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. with that assumption, you can um, and admittedly it is an assumption, but with that assumption, you can it can yield really interesting and helpful things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so by adopting that posture, like. I would say to people like try it out. Expect yeah. that the text is is going to surprise you, and then see if yeah. it does. <laughs> totally. Well, we were talking to someone else today as well about Exodus and that that whole idea that sometimes we there's we come to if we've been in the story of scripture for a long time, we then just assume oh we think we know what this says, and right. so then we're not preparing to be surprised because we right there are we we kind of we think we know it, and so there's that kind of coming with that curiosity and preparing yeah. to be surprised allows you to then actually read it not just reading it how you've always understood it. Yeah. yeah so so uh, familiarity can be a benefit, but it can also be a curse, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. to go to those texts that you know pretty well and say, mm-hmm. what if I read it from a new angle and just mm-hmm. tried to hear it again? This is where like reading from other perspectives can be so useful. Yeah. Is yeah. that it can jolt you out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's your the community you're part of or just reading from other vantage points mm-hmm. is a way of, even if you disagree with the other vantage point, it just kind of gets you out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Can we uh, talk about a specific text that might be surprising or need, need to look a little deeper or get prepared outside of us? Prepared to be surprised. Let's, let's talk about the flood in Genesis 6. I mean, what's what's going on here? Like, is God is he mad? Is he he's full of regret that he made humanity? What is? I guess my first question: What's driving God's actions to flood the earth? Yeah, so I think the the flood story is is not written such that you know, God is just kind of uh, angry over sin and decides as a punishment to destroy the world, which is, you could see how you could get there from reading that story, right? Mm -hmm. But first of all, the text never says that God was angry. Only divine emotion is grief in that story. So that's important to Mm -hmm. note. Um, But also the, I think it's important to look at the role of violence in the lead up to the flood story. So in ancient Near Eastern flood stories, there's usually you have the the um, benefit in that case, if you want to put it that way, <laughs> within a polytheistic system of having you can have the antagonist god send the flood and the protagonist god tell the hero to get in the boat 
to avoid the flood. Mm -hmm. The problem of telling that known (laughs) cultural story within a monotheistic framework is that you don't have two deities, right? So I I think Genesis does something very ingenious with that story in order to communicate something true about God and the world. And that is that in the Genesis 6 story, violence is the antagonist. And and Mm -hmm. so... In Genesis 6, 11 to 13, it says, God looked at the earth and behold, it was ruined. And, mm-hmm. and this is prior to the flood. The, the earth is already yeah. destroyed. And so you're, as a reader, you're thinking, well, what's going on there? Well, if you go back to Genesis 4 and think about Cain and Abel, Abel oh yeah, of course, like violence ruins the land. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one murder. How much more when it consumes all of humanity? Mm-hmm. And so the, the story perspective... I think, is that violence had so consumed creation that it collapsed creation in on itself, essentially. So mm-hmm. God is looking at a ruined earth. And and I use the analogy in the book of, of a potter who, like if you're spinning clay on a wheel and you look down and you see that the the clay has air bubbles in it and it's got mm. holes and it's flapping all over that you can't patch that or it'll explode in the kiln. Mm. What you have to do is return it to useful formlessness. And so the flood then that God brings is a return to useful formlessness in order to remake it. And so there's a qualitative distri- distinction between the two kinds of destroying that happen that happen mm. in the story. On the one hand, one ruins a good creation. That's mm. not Yahweh's doing in the story. But there's another kind of destroying that moves this ruined creation to a place where it can be remade, and that is Yahweh's doing. Now, I know yeah. that's still like leaves lingering problems. Um, but I, but I think it's important to kind of follow the logic of the story, Mm -hmm. at least to get a a sense of what it might be trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful to hear that is, I mean, would it be, I'm just trying to understand, would it be comparable maybe to something like climate change or, or, you know, the earth Mm -hmm. kind of almost crying out and this being the, the cause of it, like it's ruined. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and from a, I don't know if this would be a fair analogy, but you know, from a from a theological perspective, you could say that you know God has set the world with certain laws and uh, structures such that human activity does ruin the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there are limits yeah. to mm-hmm. to what we can do, where the world just kind of puts up with it, um, yeah. where creation puts up with it, and so. There's a if you mm. if you can't if you pan all the way out by mm-hmm. by creating the world like this, God has made it such that yeah. human action can destroy it, and mm-hmm. so at the level of setting the laws of nature in motion, um, you know maybe a, a writer would say you know God God actually facilitates yeah facilitates this in response to human human action but yeah i'd have to kind of think through that more one uh, one lingering question i have is it in the in the in the flood story what what happens it it doesn't it's not really a um i don't know if the language would be like recreation i mean it is a recreation but god still works through noah like through humanity 
Like my question is, is yeah. why it's not a complete return? Yeah, no, it's not a complete. Like why yeah. if if um like why why not just start over? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is because I think it's a little window into how God starts over, um, or will start over going forward. Is that he always he by creating the world in the first place, he's he's committed to working through this creation, mm-hmm. and so he preserves a remnant in the ark because that's that's how god's always going to he, he'll never sort of bypass the creation he made utter like entirely mm. bypass it and so and he chooses an upright and righteous person and and i know like sometimes our theological gears kick in and we're like well he's still sinful um and and so he must have brought that sin into the ark with him and that's true at one level but i think at the level of the story what happens after the flood with the whole vineyard incident is mm-hmm. um, is a kind of second fall, um, fall mm-hmm. fall from that righteousness and innocence, and and so the Noah story is a restart, but it's a restart into a different kind of like things are different after the flood, and mm-hmm. and one of those things is that God says I'm never again going to curse the the earth because of or let the earth get cursed because of humans. So I think he kind of anesthetizes the earth against the worst effects of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, and so while, while violence will still impact the land, it won't create such a rupture that creation collapses again. So he mm-hmm. enters into covenant with creation, I think as a protective measure um, to, a prevent that ruin again and B move it toward its ultimate purpose. The the kind of idea that God remembers Noah. What what's we when we hear we hear that in kind of in different parts that God remembered or what's going why remember like what's going on here? It's not is it just that you know just make sure he doesn't forget tie something on his finger yeah. you, you know <laughs> what's what's going on with the the remembering kind of concept. Yeah, so right in the middle of the flood story is that key phrase in eight one where it says God remembered mm-hmm. Noah. It's the mm-hmm. hinge point in the story, and right. that's the point right. where we see divine action kick into gear once the flood started. Prior to that, it's all sort of happening naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so remembering is is covenantal language, and I think it it it's a way of saying activating the benefits of the commitment with this person. And so mm-hmm. and another place um, where that appears is at the beginning of Exodus, where in Exodus two, like 23 and 24, um, it says, God, you know, the Israelites cried out, they're groaning, went up to God, God, God heard it. He saw, he came down, he, he, he um, uh, remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point isn't that God totally forgot and he's like, oh my goodness, I, I have okay. to do something because I'm in covenant mm. relationship with these people. Like To remember is to enact those covenantal benefits. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and so um, this will get into a whole discussion about what knowing means in the Old Testament, but mm. uh, in the first place, but, but to know and remember is to... Um, to experience and enact and not just to cognitively know something. Mm -hmm. So um, like Israel's called to, to every year during Sukkot to live in booths so that you may know 
that your ancestors lived in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you know it all year, right? Right. But then there's an experience of it. And that's the mm-hmm. kind of knowing. And it's mm-hmm. like that with remembering. There's a a knowing that you've got this covenant with God. And then there's the sort of active experience of the covenant God working on your behalf. And that's what mm-hmm. I think Genesis 8.1 is getting at. Matt, I wonder if we could delve into another um, passage and, and subject matter that is is both surprising and and um, needs needs the ability to be slow to read. So, in uh, in the book of Joshua, it's kind of like known or has been known as like the conquest book. Um, commands like the destruction of the Canaanites and all the ites, and then in Deuteronomy twenty seventeen, it states to completely destroy or devote to destruction the Hittites, the Amorites, etc. So I wonder if you could share with us a bit like this Deuteronomy passage and then maybe also reframe or frame up the book of Joshua. Yeah, those those texts in Deuteronomy are are definitely challenging and I think I think one thing that we have to acknowledge up front is that it does sit within that ancient form of warfare rhetoric that we talked about earlier and where they spoke in totalizing terms about something that they knew was more akin to conventional warfare but it was a way of conceptualizing it religiously that foregrounded the uncompromising nature of this contest between Yahweh and commitments to other gods. And this this language comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, if you compare Exodus and Deuteronomy on the subject of like what's going to happen to the Canaanites, Exodus envisions the displacement of the Canaanites, their defeat, um, but primarily focuses on the need to destroy totally their idols and doesn't talk about the need to destroy totally the Canaanites. And this seems to be how the end of the book of Joshua, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, books of Ezra and Nehemiah read that law. So at the end of Joshua, Joshua says to the people in this like pastoral tone, he's he's speaking to them in his farewell swan song and he says, Turn away from the idols that are among you, Israel, like within your community. So this idolatry problem is something Israel had to deal with. And he didn't say, hey, Deuteronomy 13 says anyone with an idol, they need to be stoned to death and and burned. So why doesn't he apply that law? Right. And and I think the reason is because he's the spirit of the law is total removal of any threat to loyalty to Yahweh. And and so later on, it's interesting in the reigns of Kings Hezekiah and Josiah, they too um, are, they go on this rampage of destroying all the high places and idols and Asherah poles and pillars in the community, in the, in the nation. And all of that language comes right out of Deuteronomy 7, where this, this law is first given to totally destroy but what they don't do is hunt for Canaanites. And, and they're viewed as loyal to the covenant, Hezekiah and Josiah. And, and what that suggests to me is that these, 
these texts are being read in the spirit that they're meant to be read. That the the true aim was to avoid idols and the threat of idolatry through intermarriage, which is the issue Ezra Nehemiah deals with. So now that doesn't get rid of the the challenges of Joshua 6 and 10 and 11, where they are described to be literally putting people to the sword. Um, But I think it at least shows how those texts were read by later Israelites, which I think is when the book of Joshua was even being kind of formally um, edited and put together as a, as a final form book. So a lot there that we could unpack, but that's kind of quick sketch of where I would go with that question. Well, and I mean, there's a lot to unpack, but there's also a whole book that's been written about it. So, I mean, there is, you didn't say it. I can't give it all away here. Exactly right. right. Yeah. So read the book is basically the takeaway from the answer of that question. Um, (laughs) But Matt, I don't know if you talk about this in the book, actually, but I wondered if you could share a little bit about how this kind of exploration of these violent texts has maybe impacted your own faith and your own walk with with Christ and what how how kind of wrestling with these texts has impacted your faith. Mm. Sure. It, I would say it's it's been both challenging and faith developing. Mm. And on, on the challenging front, it confronts me regularly with the limits of my ability to grapple with this pro- problem and also the the lingering issues that I still have, right? Mm-hmm. So t- if I didn't work on this problem, I wouldn't really be sitting with those lingering issues yeah. all the time, right? So uh, I'm, I'm constantly aware of the fact that I've got a big pile of texts where I'm still like, what do I do with this? And mm-hmm. what where do I, how do I begin to grapple with these? And so really the book in many ways was an exercise in hope and, and, um, okay, I'm going to take these texts and work through them slowly. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to work with those. Um, and I've got a pile of other ones still to go through. (laughs) Um, and I might never, and I, and I also trust then it's faith developing in the sense that I'm part of a a body of Christ and I don't have to work all that out. Yeah. And, and so I, I, first of all, there are other people that can mediate those texts to me in the church and have spent more time in them and, and I can lean on them. And uh, it's also faith developing in the sense that it's, it's uh, forced me to um, articulate or, or think through and live into a, a better way of, of sitting with unresolved mm-hmm. uh, questions and challenges in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this problem in particular, and there are others like it, um, but this one, especially for me, um, has, has made me think, okay, at the end of the day, then where, where do I go on the question of God's character? Cause that's really right. Yeah. At the, at the heart of this whole endeavor. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is 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 God good? And can we trust scripture to lead us into the goodness of God? Mm-hmm. Um, if not, like then then we're in the wrong kind of faith because because Christianity, like Judaism, is a is a very um text focused faith. You, you mm-hmm. can't avoid the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. um 
so so I think that that's been faith developing because in part because of my own wrestlings, but also because I've been able to journey with others through this and to see them uh, come alive to the ways that scripture is more wonderful and surprising than mm-hmm. maybe we expected. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a kind of feedback effect of being around other people in that process where they're seeing their faith built kind of builds my faith as well. And mm-hmm. and that's, that's such a gift and a privilege and, mm-hmm. and why, you know, Nick, you're in the Joshua class with me and, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of mutuality to that, that process as we, we grapple with things. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Matt, if there's one, if what, what's, if you've done those two problem, those two texts, Noah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Canaanite conquest. What's yeah. number three? What's your What's your next one? You're going to You're going to try and understand. I, I don't know. I don't think don't I'll know. I'll write a book on it. Yeah. Um, but I think the the one that is well, maybe two. One would be violent laws, um, mm. other than the conquest law. But um, mm. I think in particular some of the the rhetoric of judgment in the prophet that judgment is depicted in sexualized terms so mm. um i think i think even though it's metaphorical depicting judgment as a kind of sexual violation of israel i think that's just really really hard mm. uh, to grapple with and and there are some people i've read on that subject that have been really helpful, including Brittany Kim, who's teaching, a, um, has taught and, and will teach again at, at Regent. Um, so I'm grateful for people like that, but that, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's the kind of stuff where when you're reading with kids, you, you edit as you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, so, oh, oh yeah. yeah. So good, Matt. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for helping us kind of understand these things. Thanks for writing your book in a way that we can understand it. That's a great thing. And <laughs> um, yeah, that's the hope. Totally. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Nick. Um, appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.